The Lord's table is a very special and important ritual in the local church and for the local church, and it is for everyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ritual that has reality is ritual that teaches through symbol significant doctrinal points. We go back to the Old Testament. There were various rituals that were conducted in the tabernacle and the temple, rituals that involved sacrifice, rituals that involved cleansing, rituals that spoke of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ritual has reality in two ways. First of all, because of what it is communicating in terms of truth about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ or perhaps the uh, spiritual life of the particular dispensation involved. Second, it has reality because there is something real on the other end. Religions that are not based on the Bible and do not, are not based on the person and work of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross are not based on reality. They are simply activities that are, that engage the emotions or the, or appeal to the psychological well-being of the individual, provide some sort of subjective pleasure to them, but they do not relate at all to the truth as God has disclosed it to us in His Word. The Lord's table is designed to teach us and to remind us of the person of Jesus Christ and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It is an extremely simple ceremony. It involves only two elements, the bread and the cup. One would think that... One would think that a ritual that taught about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ would have to be very complex, something that would have to be very sophisticated. And yet, in the brilliance of God's plan, truth is usually communicated in very simple ways so that uh, everybody can grasp its meaning. The two elements in the Lord's table are the bread, which is unleavened bread, and the cup, which is Historically has been wine, but as I have pointed out in the past, due to the influence of legalistic American Baptists in the 19th century, there was a shift from wine to grape juice. So most churches have grape juice, although some still use wine. And in one case, as I've told you, uh, a church I know of in Dallas, they use both, but they never told anybody that. So, so even though there was two rings of grape juice and two rings of, of wine, uh, unless you had been there for a while, you didn't know which was which. And I went there with a friend, and we argued after afterward that he said, well, that was wine. I said, that wasn't wine. That was grape juice. And it was six months before we <laughs> learned what was really going on. But these two elements are designed to teach about the person of Christ in the bread and the work of Christ in the cup. The elements have their historical root in the Passover meal that was taken by the Jews the night before they were delivered from their slavery in Egypt. Therefore, the the doctrinal baggage, as it were, that these elements carry go back into ancient times and speak of the deliverance from slavery. In the same way, the elements of the Lord's table in the New Testament speak of the deliverance from slavery 
to sin, the work, the gracious work of God in providing a Savior who paid the penalty in full for us on the cross so that all we have to do is simply accept that for our own. And that is symbolized by eating and drinking the cup, just as anyone can eat or drink, anyone can believe. Eating and drinking pictures accepting or taking something for one's own, taking something into one's life. And that is the idea portrayed uh, in this element of faith in Christ, accepting Christ as one's own personal Savior. The bread is unleavened because leaven in the Scripture is used as a symbol for sin. And Jesus Christ was born sinless, as we've studied the last several weeks, in the virgin conception and virgin birth. He was born without sin. Therefore, he did not inherit the sin nature from Adam. Not having a sin nature, there was no home for the imputation of Adam's original sin. And at no point in his life did Jesus Christ ever disobey the Father or act independently of the Father, and therefore there was no personal sin. That meant that he was completely qualified as the sinless God-man to go to the cross and die there as our substitute. He was qualified to be the mediator and to pay the penalty for our sins. The cup is a picture of blood. The redness of the wine is a picture of blood and therefore speaks of the sacrificial element of Jesus Christ's atoning work on the cross. In the Old Testament, there was blood shed by the uh, animal sacrifices. The lamb specifically that was sacrificed at Passover portrayed the Lord Jesus Christ so that John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus come, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But that shedding of blood was not effective for anything. It merely had ceremonial or ritual value. It was good it was good in its ritual teaching because it cleansed the people ritually, but not actually. They were not saved by that blood. Hebrews chapter nine tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. The the sacrifice in the Old Testament was a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. But it was not a picture of his physical death, because physical death itself is not the penalty for sin. But physical death is perhaps the most horrible consequence of the penalty of sin, which was spiritual death, separation from God, who is the source of all life. So the physical death of Christ also is a representation of what took place spiritually between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on the day that Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. It was during that time that the heavens were darkened so that no one could look upon the horrible suffering that Jesus Christ endured during that time when he who knew no sin, the impeccable sinless Lord Jesus Christ, became sin on our behalf when God the Father in his justice imputed to Jesus Christ all the sins of humanity. And it was during that time that he paid the penalty for sin. And when that time was over, Jesus said, it is finished. Not only did Jesus say it was finished, but in a careful reading of John's account of the cross, John says, and when it was finished. So twice John emphasizes the fact that it was finished 
before Jesus Christ died, died physically. So what was finished? What was finished was the redemptive plan of God, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Everything that was necessary for our salvation was completed before Jesus Christ died physically. So why did he have to die physically? Because physical death, as I stated earlier, is the most extreme consequence of all the consequences of spiritual death. And by dying physically, Jesus Christ would be raised physically from the dead, demonstrating that he had conquered all of the consequences of spiritual death. He had paid the penalty and conquered death, and that he was therefore accepted by God the Father as the perfect sacrifice, and that his sacrifice was indeed pleasing to God and accepted by his righteousness and justice. Now, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he celebrated the Passover meal, which looked back to that deliverance from slavery in Egypt for the Jews. He took two elements, the bread and the cup, and he invested them with new meaning, new meaning that would not only look back to what Christ did on the cross, but also look forward to his second coming, because Jesus had said that he would not drink wine again until he came to into his kingdom. So just as the Passover meal looked back to Jesus, I mean, looked back to the sacrifice or the, or the um, deliverance, of the Jews from slavery in Egypt and looked forward in anticipation to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The cup, the bread and the cup look back to what Christ did on the cross, but they also remind us that he is coming again in his kingdom at the second coming. So there's that twofold aspect. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that, that we are to uh, do this in a manner of fellowship with God. The only restriction on the Lord's table is that we are in fellowship with the Lord. That, of course, means that you must be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you don't have to be a member of this church or a member of any other church or any denomination. It is open to anyone who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you need to be in fellowship with God. Paul says that we are to examine ourselves, and the reason that the Corinthians were having trouble was because of their carnality. Many of them were sick and weary, and many of them slept. That is a euphemism for the sin unto death. So they had gone through divine discipline because they came to the Lord's table with wrong motives and out of fellowship. We come to the Lord's table in order to remember what he has done for us. Jesus said to do these things in remembrance of him. It reminds us on a monthly basis that all that we have and all that we are is due to the grace of God and the unique sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, to give you the opportunity to prepare yourselves uh, for taking in the Word, to concentrate on what you know about the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross in your behalf. During this time, the deacons will come forward, and then we will return thanks for each element. Let's pray. Our Father, we now come to the Lord's table in order to remember your work on the cross on our behalf. Father, we thank you that we have so great a salvation that 
that there is nothing that we can do to earn it or deserve it. There is nothing we can do to merit it. All we can do is accept it as a free gift. Father, we thank you for this first element, the bread, and what it teaches us. It reminds us that Jesus Christ was not merely a man, but he was the perfect God-man, that he was sinless, that he was completely qualified to go to the cross as our substitute, as our mediator, and to pay the penalty of sin on our behalf. It reminds us that he was true humanity, yet without sin. Now, Father, as we partake of the bread... We ask that uh, you keep us mindful of all that we have because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When Jesus Christ celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, he came to the bread. He broke the bread and passed it to his disciples, and he said, This is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat. Let's return thanks for the cup. Father, we thank you for the cup and what it represents in terms of the substitutionary spiritual sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. We're reminded that we could do nothing to pay for our own sins, and you devised a perfect plan by sending the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, to come to, the, come to earth to become incarnate through the virgin conception and virgin birth to grow up in his humanity and to go to the cross and there to suffer unimaginable pain and anguish as he bore in his body our sins. We thank you for that perfect sacrifice that we can add nothing to it, we cannot earn it, we cannot merit it, for everything was done that was necessary. Father, we thank you for this cup. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Jesus Christ then took the cup. It was actually the third cup in the course of the meal called the cup of redemption. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's open in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, for the truth that it contains, for the fact that it is the compass for our life, for it teaches us how to orient to reality, for you have defined reality as the creator and sovereign of the universe. Father, we thank you for the truth that we have here. We pray that as we study these things before us this morning, that we would see how they relate to our own thinking, our own understanding, 
that through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, who fills us, that we might be able to not only understand these things, but that we might be able to apply them consistently in our own lives. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 3 John, 3 John chapter 1. 3 John, first verse, and we are still studying the principle here of friendship or love by means of the truth in the first verse. John, who refers to himself as the elder, this is the Apostle John, who in his later years pastored in Ephesus, also had an extended congregation in some of the smaller uh, villages outside of Ephesus, and he wrote to the uh, small churches in those areas, as well as to this personal friend, a man by the name of Gaius. And in the first verse, he addresses Gaius as the one whom I love by means of truth. Now, this idea of truth is foundational to understanding the first four verses, for indeed the word is repeated four times in, in the course of these four verses. But he has a particular tone towards Gaius, whom he refers to as my beloved, and refers to him that way three times in this epistle. This speaks of a very close relationship between the Apostle Paul and Gaius. It's very possible that Gaius was a close friend. Perhaps he was a pastor that John had personally taught and mentored. We don't know. Any guess would be nothing more than speculation. But he clearly emphasizes Gaius's role in this local church and the problems that developed because of one teacher by the name of Diotrephes, who rather than operating on the basis of real love, which is by means of the truth, uh, is said to love the preeminence among them. He is egotistical. He is in the position for his own uh, aggrandizement, for his own power, for his own prestige. And so there's a contrast between the true love demonstrated by John and Gaius and the pseudo-love of Diotrephes. So as we got into this study last time, we began to look at what the Bible teaches about true love, especially in the realm of friendship and loyalty. So I want to just review a few things that I covered last time. We had 11 points, I believe, last time. I want to summarize them under uh, under six points as we begin to uh, proceed forward on this verse. First of all, we must recognize that genuine love must be based on integrity. Genuine love must be based on integrity. Several times in these epistles, John mentions love by means of the truth. He does it in Second John. He does it here in Third John. That real love is based on truth. This isn't relative truth with a small t. This is an uppercase t. It is based on revelation of God. Ultimately, this teaches us that that integrity must come from the Word of God and from a relationship with God. But point number one, genuine love must be based on integrity. The declaration of love from any individual is only as strong as their personal integrity. The declaration of love from any individual is only as strong as their integrity. If they lack integrity, their declaration of love is worthless. 
If they are a person of tremendous integrity, then it has value. If they are a believer and their integrity is based on a relationship with God and they are filled with the Spirit and have Bible doctrine as the foundation for their love, then that statement has incredible value. Point number two, the model for all love is that of God who gave his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross as a substitute for mankind. We see this in such verses as John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And in John 15.13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. This can only come through an understanding of uh, a pure selflessness, that someone recognizes a value system that is outside of the person, that is outside of the person being loved or the one who is loving. It can only take place when there is an external system of absolutes based on uh, objectivity. First John 3.16 we read, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This can only come because we have in our souls Bible doctrine through the filling of the Holy Spirit to understand ultimate realities. A person who is not in right relationship with God, a person operating on carnality or an unbeliever, cannot have an ultimate frame of reference that enables them to live outside themselves. Now, there are examples of unbelievers who uh, make self-sacrificing efforts, and I'm not denying that. But the love that Jesus is talking about in John 15:13, First John 3:16 is a love that is categorically different. This is the love that Jesus spoke of in John 13, 34, and 35, when he said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you are my students, that you are learning the Word of God and applying the Word of God. This is a radical kind of love. It's not emotion. It's not sentiment. It's a love that is based on Bible doctrine. So this is the model. To speak of love... We have to start at the cross. To understand love, we have to start at the cross. This is uh, provides the basis for understanding what real love is. It comes from the integrity of God. God, who is absolute righteousness, which is the standard of his integrity. He is absolute justice, which is the uh, application of his integrity. God provided a way of salvation that would not be based on anything that man uh, did at all, so that the integrity of God provided a perfect solution that would solve the problems of God's own integrity. And the problem with God's integrity is that absolute righteousness cannot have fellowship with that that is less than perfection. So in his integrity, God provided a perfect salvation so that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, would go to the cross, die as our substitute, our personal sins would be imputed to him on the cross, and then when we put our faith alone in Christ alone, his personal sin, I mean his righteousness is imputed to us so that God the Father looks at us and in his perfect righteousness, his standard, sees Christ's righteousness in us. So his standard is satisfied. Therefore his justice 
The application of that standard is now free to bless us. Therefore, love is not based on who we are or what we have done. Love is based on the integrity of God. It is not the object of love that is the basis for love. That is the point. So that when you are in a relationship, and you uh, either friendship, romance, marriage, whatever, when you love someone, that love, if it is based on integrity, is only as good as your own character. It's only as good as your own spiritual growth. It's only as good as your own integrity. And I don't mean your natural integrity, but the integrity that is formed in you by the Holy Spirit as he forms the image of Christ in us as we progress in spiritual maturity. So point number two, the model for all love is that of God who gave his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross as a substitute for mankind. And point three, the unbeliever and the carnal believer can only produce a relative integrity that comes from the human good production of the sin nature. Remember the sin nature has is motivated by lust patterns, but it has two areas of production. The area of strength which produces human good, morality, religious operation, many fine, wonderful, beneficial, altruistic activities of mankind are nothing more than human good. Remember, fallen man can do nothing to please God or to gain the approbation of God. Everything that an unbeliever does proceeds from the one and only nature that he has, which is the sin nature. It has no spiritual value. It does not impress God, and it does not bring any benefit to him spiritually. At the other end of the spectrum, we have the, the area of weakness and its production of personal sins. So the sin nature can produce a counterfeit virtue, a counterfeit love, a counterfeit integrity. Now, by counterfeit, I'm not demeaning it but it is not the same as the integrity, the virtue, that the love that is produced by God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And if all a person has is this integrity, then it is an integrity that will fragment and fall apart whenever the winds of adversity blow. It will destroy a friendship. It will destroy a marriage. It can break up a family. Uh, no human relationship can, will ultimately stand certain adversities on human good alone from the production of the sin nature. Therefore, point number four, genuine love can only come from Bible doctrine plus the filling of the Holy Spirit. Genuine love can only come from Bible doctrine plus the filling of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5.13, Paul makes, has the command to love one another as you love yourselves. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's a quote from Leviticus chapter 18. And then he makes a, a detour in his argument. And we've studied that in the past. In Galatians 5.16, he says, Walk by the Spirit and you will not bring to completion the lusts of the flesh. And the point that he is making is, that there is a certain production of the sin nature that mimics or imitates this kind of love. 
But as he goes through his argument and he talks about walking by the Spirit and the battle between the Holy Spirit and the sin nature and the life of the believer, and he gives the outworkings of the production, the works of the flesh, he then says, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and the first fruit of the Spirit is love. So the love that we are talking about that characterizes the friendships of a believer that characterizes a romance for a believer, that characterizes marriage, is a love that is based on the integrity of God and is produced by God the Holy Spirit. This makes it a radically different kind of love, and his relationships should be markedly different from the relationships of those around him who are living in carnality or are, are not believers. This means, point number five, that genuine love is based on personal love for God the Father. That's the starting point. That's the motivation. That's the foundation. We begin with the filling of the Spirit. We learn basic promises. We learn the skills of the faith rest drill, grace, orient, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. But as we mature, when we really get to that point where we can exercise uh, love and where we begin to see the production of the Holy Spirit in our life in terms of producing uh, genuine love, it flows from our personal love for God the, God the Father. That relationship with God is what supplies the foundation, the motivation for pers- impersonal love for all mankind. We are to love one another because we have come to grips with the grace love of God for us despite our failures, despite our flaws, despite our sins, despite all of the evil in our life. We understand that God loved us not because of who and what we are, but because of who he is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Therefore, that understanding of love becomes the motivation for our love that should characterize all of our all of our human relationships. John states in 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has, has not seen. Don't you just love the way computers do things sometimes? I pulled that verse over from my notes, and it just duplicated so many words. It's, we'll get lost trying to read that. Someone says, I love God. They claim to love God, and they hate their brother. This is seen by John as an inconsistency. You can't love God and hate your brother. Neither can you love God, love your brother without loving God. That is the implication here. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has not seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. In other words, I mean, an implication from this verse, it's not what it's directly teaching, but the implication is uh, love for God, which is developed from learning doctrine. You don't have an experience with God. It's God whom you have not seen. Loving God is not an experience with God. It's based on learning doctrine, and as that love for God grows, then its byproduct is this genuine love for another believer, uh, this would include both friendship love and marital love. And then our conclusion last time, in our conclusion, in our conclusion we saw point number six, impersonal love for mankind must be the basis for all love relationships between humans. 
whether that's romantic love or friendship love. By impersonal love, what we mean is not that it is some sort of cold, uh, cold, rational love, but that it doesn't necessitate a personal involvement or personal knowledge of the object of love. You can demonstrate impersonal love to people you run into in the grocery store, people you run into at work, people you uh, encounter out on the highways. Uh, wherever you have any kind of relationship with other human beings, you can express this without knowing them. They may be uh, a terrible person. They may be a wonderful person. You don't know. You are interacting with them on the basis of who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And ultimately, this is uh, grounded in the fact that God loved every single human being in such a way that he sent his son to die on the cross for them. And if God loves every human being in such a way that he would send his son to die on the cross for him, then that should impact the way we treat every single human being who comes across our path. So having said that as a background, let's look at the doctrine of friendship. The doctrine of friendship. Many people today don't understand what friendship is all about. And they have very few friends or they're not very good friends themselves. Point number one, there are different categories of friendship. There are different categories of friendship. Sometimes we use the word very loosely. Sometimes we use it in a more technical sense. But there are different categories or different spheres of friendship or intimacy. For example, we have those that are acquaintances. We know them. We see them at Bible class once a week or once a month. We see people at work. We know them. We know them. Uh, we know their face. Sometimes we know a little bit about them. We know something about their family, something about their background. But we don't spend any real time with them. We don't have common interests with those people. They're simply the realm of acquaintances. Then there are those with whom we work or are or function on a team with. There are various kinds of teams, but this is a group where you spend a lot of time with these people specifically oriented to a particular challenge or project. And there's all kinds of different teams. There, are, For example, you can have a, a team in the military where they go through combat situations together and their lives depend upon one another, and they surmount incredible challenges and obstacles together. You can have very, and a result of that is it builds a category of friendship that's built on the common challenge that they work together to overcome. And if you have ever been involved with a group like that, you know that that develops a certain camaraderie that can last throughout the years, that even if you haven't seen each other in 5, 10, 15, or 20 years, when you get back together, there is this wonderful camaraderie based upon this, this teamwork, this challenge that was surmounted sometime in the past. But that does not equate to the kind of friendship I'm talking about, which is an intimate uh, soul relationship between two people, either of the same sex or of opposite sex. So don't confuse that type of intimacy or that type of, of friendship with uh, true, deep friendship. Then we have the third category, which is what I'm addressing here, and that is intimate friendships. There are very few intimate friendships that we have in our life. Some people might have a few more. Others, because of their personality type, uh, have a few less. Some people are more prone to being involved socially and to developing friendships. Others are less prone. But 
the principles apply no matter how many friends you have. But nobody can have very many intimate friends. You may have one or two, you may have four or five, but that that sphere of intimate friendships will not usually exceed more than uh, a handful. Point number two, friendship is based on impersonal love and integrity. Friendship is based on impersonal love and integrity. It's not based on what you get out of that relationship, what the other person can do for you. It's not based on emotion. It's not based on attractiveness of the other person. It's not based on their popularity. It's not based on some perceived or real benefit or gain. True friendship is based on the integrity of the one who is loving and includes a desire for the best for the object of one's love. That's what real love is. If you say that you or believe that you love X person, that means that you want the highest and best for that person. Not the highest and best in terms of your opinion. See, this is the problem with an immature believer. They're still operating on a lot of self-centeredness, a lot of, uh, a lot of arrogance. And so they might say, well, I want what's best for them, and it's, and it's such, such and so. But that's what they think is best because that's what's best for them. It's only as you begin to mature as a believer and have absolute norms and standards in your soul from the Word of God that you can begin to understand what is truly best for another person in terms of how God defines what best is, not how we define uh, what's best. So the true friendship is based on a desire for what is truly best for the object of one's love. Therefore, point three, friendship, <clears throat> intimate friendship, must be based on eternal values which provide objectivity. You can't know what's best for someone, what's truly best for someone, unless you have an objective frame of reference. And that objective frame of reference can only come from Bible doctrine in the soul. So point number four, friendships, then a warning, friendships can promote or destroy one's spiritual life. Just a note of caution, one's spiritual life is not dependent upon friendship. See, friendship isn't a factor in your own personal spiritual life or spiritual growth. But friendships may promote or destroy your spiritual life. On the one hand, if you have a friend who is positive, who is a maturing believer and can be a source of mutual encouragement and divine viewpoint wisdom and advice then that is someone who will give you good counsel and someone who will help motivate you as you grow and mature in the spiritual life. On the other hand, if you have a friend or friends who are negative to doctrine, who are not growing, whose value system is not biblical, then these people will be a hindrance and a negative influence to you spiritually. And if you don't cut them out of your life, then eventually you will find yourself, uh, find your spiritual life being destroyed. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. This is something you ought to emblazon on the wall over the door of your teenager's bedrooms. 
Bad company corrupts good morals. Point number five. To have virtuous friendships, one must first be a virtuous friend. To have virtuous friendships, one must first be a virtuous friend. It's not dependent on the other person. It's dependent on you and your growth, your integrity, your spiritual maturity. First, look to yourself and your own integrity and honor. Don't look to blame the other person. Well, it's their fault. They just didn't have the right integrity. They just didn't have the right situation. We have to take ownership for our own and responsibility for our own decisions. Sixth, true friends are those that we can count on in times of adversity. There are many passages in the Proverbs related to friendship. In the next four points, all relate to what is said in the uh, book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, which is a wisdom book. Point number six, true friends are those we can count on in times of adversity. Why? Because that friend has real objectivity. We get in times of adversity, especially if we start operating apart from the Word of God or we get overwhelmed by our emotions, we get overwhelmed by the circumstances, we're so so under the pressure of adversity that we can't see what's really going on. We lose sight of the big picture. All we know is we're being buffeted from the left and from the right, and we lose that perspective and the objectivity, and you need a true friend who can tell you exactly what's going on. Even if you're wrong, when you're out of line, they're going to, you can count on them to tell you the absolute truth. And unfortunately, if you've gotten into uh, where you're converting adversity into stress and you're operating on the sin nature in arrogance, when somebody comes along and tells you the truth, you won't have the objectivity to appreciate it. In fact, you will react to them in arrogance and you will probably send them on their way in one fashion or another because you don't want to hear the truth when somebody who is a close, intimate friend is telling you the truth. Now, there's always a warning I want to put in here. There's always some Christian who wants to come along, and they think they know what's best for somebody else they hardly know. See, this is where the doctrine of privacy comes in. The doctrine of privacy doesn't mean that we tell any and everybody, get out of my life. You know, privacy is something that you decide. The closer you let somebody to you, the more intimate you let somebody become to you, the more you drop your right to privacy. If you want to have complete privacy where nobody will suggest to you that perhaps you're doing something wrong, then you shouldn't have any friends at all. Just go live on an island somewhere and get rid of everybody that you're associated with. Privacy doesn't mean that. Privacy means, though, that ultimately, if I am a good friend to somebody, I will say, now, you know, this is the way it is, and you need to maybe look at this and perhaps look at that, and this is what the Word of God says, but I'm not going to nag or badger them about it. I will explain the issues, and then it's up to God, and it's between them and the Lord as to how they're going to handle it. It doesn't mean that as a friend I let them do things that are ultimately harmful for them. Now, I'm not talking about someone I don't know very well or someone I just have a pretty decent acquaintance with, but somebody that is a very close friend that where we have established these kinds of or this basis for a friendship. Proverbs 17:17 17, 17 states, "A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity." 
this is not a contrast. In some translations, it, it, it's, it's like it's a contrast. A friend loves at all times, but a brother is born for adversity. And that doesn't reflect the, the Hebrew. The vav there is a consecutive, and it's a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. And the parallelism of Proverbs 17, 17, the emphasis is on, is positive towards both the friend and the brother. And that both of these are true. There's a parallelism here. A friend is there at all times. Good times, bad times. When you have money, when you don't have money, when you're, when you're prosperous, when you're not prosperous, when you're out of fellowship, when you're in fellowship, when you're angry, when you're sad, when you're happy, when things are going well, when things aren't going well. A friend sticks with you because the issue isn't the circumstances in your life. The issue is, uh, the character of God, the integrity of God that has been built into their own life as a result of their spiritual growth. Same thing in the second uh, strophe here. A brother is born for adversity. That is, that it recognizes the principle that at times it is important when we go through tough times to have someone close to us who can encourage us from the Word of God, from the position of objectivity, which only Bible doctrine provides. So true friends are those we can count on in times of adversity, and a true friend is someone who is going to tell us the way things are, even if we don't want to hear it, even if it's not our plan or our agenda. It is someone who has the objectivity to tell us the truth, however unpleasant it might be. If you know someone, I have a close friend, and they're engaged in some activity that you know is wrong, that you know is ultimately uh, non-productive, that has some kind of problem associated with it, and you don't tell them, then you're not much of a friend. You are not operating on, on any level of objectivity, and you are letting them go around and do perhaps engage in uh, self-destructive activity or sinful activity. Now, I'm not telling you to go out there and be a spiritual policeman for everybody. That's not the point. But the point is that there are times when people are doing certain things and they've lost the objectivity and they need the encouragement and objectivity of a true friend. Point number seven. We must be careful of those whom we call friends. Few will stand firm with us in adversity, and those who wouldn't stand with us in adversity are those that will probably... Uh, slander us and ridicule us and laugh about us down the road. So you be careful whom you call a friend. Proverbs 18.24, a man of many friends comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. There, a man of many friends comes to ruin. Don't put your trust in a lot of different people. Don't have, try to have intimate friendships with many people. You need to stick with those who are those few who are truly close to you and who have objectivity based on the Word of God. Eighth point. People who are celebrities, people who are wealthy or powerful in positions of prominence or popularity must be extremely cautious about whom they select as friends. People who are in any kind of position of prestige or uh, any kind of position where they are uh, po- there's popularity or some sort of 
uh, significance attached to their role need to be very careful whom they select as friends. People will use you and to get whatever they want out of you. Proverbs 19.4, wealth adds many friends, but a poor man is separated from his friend. See, if you're popular, if you have wealth, if you have uh, position, power, prestige, a lot of people are going to want to be your friend, and you have to be very, very careful and very judicious. Point number nine, a true friend is objective enough to tell the truth even when it is unpleasant or difficult. A true friend is objective enough to tell the truth even when it is unpleasant or difficult. This is only because they have an external standard of objectivity. This is true only because they have an external standard of objectivity. Proverbs 27.6 and 27.9 Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 27.9, oil and perfume make the heart glad, so a man's counsel is sweet to his friend. See, the comparison there is that a friend gives you counsel or advice. If it's coming from doctrine and objectivity, it is more valuable to you than anything else that you may value in life. But it takes maturity and it takes spiritual growth to be able to recognize that and to have the humility to listen to someone who tells you things that you may not particularly desire to hear. And then point number 10, a person who is not able to maintain and sustain long-term intimate friendships is not a good candidate for marriage. A person who is not able to maintain and sustain long-term intimate friendships is not a good candidate for marriage. Now, I throw that out for those who are single who are listening to this because if you are involved in a dating relationship, a romantic relationship with someone prior to marriage, and they are not a person who has long-term friendships, then you need to question whether or not they can maintain or sustain a long-term friendship. I run into this in marriage counseling every now and then when I do that, and I talk to people about, well, who are your friends? How long have they been friends? What are, what are your friendships like? They've never had a healthy friendship, and that means that they haven't really understood a lot of the doctrine of impersonal love for God. They can't, if you can't maintain a good friendship, how are you going to maintain a marriage? So this is just a sort of a uh, test for whether or not a person has learned how to sustain and maintain a friendship. And then Proverbs has one other verse in uh, the book on friends that I think is important for some of you. I know some of you will probably have this memorized before you get home and hang it over your husband or wife's bed. Proverbs 27.14 says, He who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. So I just didn't want anybody falling asleep here. For those of you who are who are morning people uh, and you're married to someone who is not, you'll probably hear that verse a lot. 
Friendship also entails loyalty. Loyalty is a concept that is often misunderstood. Many people have a distorted view of loyalty. They think that if you're loyal, you're always going to agree with someone. They think that if you're loyal, you're always going to do what someone wants you to do. You're always going to validate uh, someone else's agenda. That is a distorted and a perverted view of loyalty. That is a loyalty that is not based ultimately on the truth. That's why John addresses Gaius as someone he loves in the truth. True loyalty has as its first objective loyalty to the word of God and loyalty to the plan of God. When that is the foundation of loyalty, then we can have true objective loyalty for every other area of life. So, Seven points on friendship and loyalty. Point number one, loyalty is not blind. Genuine loyalty is based on impersonal love, objectivity, and truth. It does not say I will affirm whatever they do, wherever they do it, because they're my friend. It is based first and foremost on truth. Point number two, a basic definition. Loyalty means to be faithful steadfast or consistent in one's allegiance to a person or group of persons, which would include a church, a school, or an organ, any organization, a political entity, or even a creed or a set of beliefs. Loyalty means to be faithful, steadfast, or consistent in one's allegiance to a person or group of persons, and that would include a church, a school, an org, any organization or political entity or a creed or set of beliefs. You can be loyal to your standards. You can be loyal to your beliefs. You can be loyal to a college or university you attended. You can be loyal to a church or you can be loyal to a political party. You can be loyal to a nation. Third point, the biblical term that is usually translated loyalty in the Old Testament is the Hebrew verb chesed. It is the Hebrew verb chesed. And this is one of the most important words related to grace and love in the Old Testament. C-H-E-S-E-D. And it is usually translated faithful love, enduring love, Never-ending love, or never-failing love, or loyal love. This is the love that God demonstrates to man, that God is loyal to his covenant even when man fails. This is the kind of love that God demonstrated at the fall. That God is loyal to man and provides a redemption solution for the human race, even though man has failed, even though man has been disobedient and rebellious. God is faithful to his original covenant. He is faithful to his character. So even when the object of love and the object of loyalty fails and is, in a human sense, human viewpoint, relative sense, unworthy of love, the love sticks in there because of integrity, because of integrity, which means, leads to point number four. Genuine loyalty, then, is a faithfulness that is erected on integrity and objectivity. 
and that can only come from Bible doctrine, and it endures through impersonal love. Now, I have a lot of ideas in there. General loyalty then, genuine loyalty then, is a faithfulness erected on integrity and objectivity. You can't get true loyalty if there's no integrity or no objectivity, and you only get that from a study of Bible doctrine under the filling of the Holy Spirit, And loyalty then endures through impersonal love. If you don't have impersonal love, you cannot be loyal. Point number five, loyalty may be engendered by gratitude. There are many people who confuse gratitude with loyalty. Many people confuse gratitude with love. But gratitude cannot be converted into loyalty. When you're... When you have confused loyalty with gratitude, sometimes we may be incredibly grateful for what somebody has done for us. But when gratitude becomes the motivator instead of integrity, then what happens is emotions enter in and blur objectivity. In other words, we're so grateful to what this person has done for us that we can no longer be objective and do what's right when they've done something wrong. Because, oh, how could I ever correct them? Look at what they've done for me. That would be so ungrateful. That's a distortion of the concept of gratitude, and it's a distortion of the concept of integrity. If you convert gratitude into uh, loyalty based on integrity, then that means applies the principle of, of uh, Proverbs 27.6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Loyalty means that you can tell somebody, that they should not do something even though they have had a tremendous uh, significance or impact in your life and you're grateful to them for that. Point number six, though both believers and unbelievers are capable of loyalty, only believers can have a loyalty based on the truth. Though both believers and unbelievers are capable of a certain type of loyalty, Remember, unbelievers and carnal believers have a loyalty that comes from human good in the soul, so that only believers operating on the filling of the Holy Spirit can have a loyalty that is based on truth. And finally, point seven, loyalty like genuine love must be ultimately based on the truth and the plan of God. Loyalty like genuine love must ultimately be directed toward truth, that is Bible doctrine, and the plan of God. This enables the believer to have objectivity in his loyalty and divorce it from emotion. He keeps the priority straight. He, the priority, when the priorities are based on doctrine, he is able then to have objectivity in those relationships. But when that is sacrificed, when truth is not the core of, an, of loyalty, then you will easily slip into blind loyalty, which would place a friend above the plan of God or above Bible doctrine. Now, there are several biblical examples of failures in loyalty, several illustrative examples of failures in loyalty. First of all, Adam flunked the loyalty test when he followed Esha into sin. He was to be loyal to God as the image bearer of God and obey God's mandate not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when Esau ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and offered that to him, instead of obeying God and sticking with the truth, he went with the pressures of the moment. 
So he failed in his loyalty test directed to God. Of course, that plunged the human race into sin. A second example of a failure of loyalty occurred in the life of Abraham. Abraham flunked the loyalty to God test when he disobeyed God and left the land during a time of famine in Genesis chapter uh, uh, 13. When a famine came in the land, rather than staying in the land as God told him, Abraham tried to solve the problem on his own, and he went to Egypt because there was more food down in Egypt, and this dishonored God. But eventually, Abraham grew spiritually so that by the end of his life, he is called the friend of God, James 2:23. Joab, who was David's right-hand man and the commander of his armies, failed the loyalty test when he obeyed David's order to assassinate Uriah. After David had his affair with Bathsheba and, he just, and Bathsheba became pregnant, David needed to cover up the pregnancy, so the best way to deal with that, since her husband was out of town, it was to try to get, first of all, he tried to get Uriah to come back in town and to spend the night with his wife, but Uriah had too much integrity, he was too loyal to the truth so and to his troops, so that instead of spending the night and enjoying uh, his time at home with his wife, he slept outside the door of the house because he wasn't going to have a more comfortable environment than his troops. So he demonstrated a true loyalty to his troops, and then when he went back to the front lines and, of course, had not spent the uh, evening with his wife, there was no way to cover up who uh, the, the real source of her pregnancy. So David ordered uh, his general, uh, Joab, to assassinate Uriah. That way, if he was out of the picture, it would, he would uh, attempt to cover up the, the infidelity. And Joab obeyed him. See, there's a higher standard to obey. There's a higher standard, which is Bible doctrine and the truth of God's Word. And so we must always make that the standard and never uh, place our friendships above truth or doctrine. Loyalty must always be to the truth first and to people uh, secondarily. Joab probably confused gratitude with loyalty. He was grateful to David for all that David had done, so he was going to do whatever David told him to do. And never make that mistake. That is terribly destructive. Point number four, Peter failed the loyalty test when he betrayed the Lord uh, the night he went to the cross. Peter failed the loyalty test as he came under the pressure of adversity because he never understood what the plan was for Jesus to go to the cross he was building all of his loyalty on emotion. Lord, I'll never betray you. I'll, I'll never turn my back on you. And because it was all emotion and he didn't understand the truth, he failed when the pressure increased. Point number five, believers fail the loyalty, loyalty test when they place loyalty to a person or a cause or a creed over Bible doctrine. Bible doctrine must always be first. And then finally, there's a positive example of loyalty and friendship in the Scriptures, and this is found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. Paul is writing to the Philippians, and he says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. Now notice what he says about Timothy in this relationship. That I may send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. 
For I have no one else of kindred spirit. He can trust Timothy. Timothy has grown to spiritual maturity and has integrity so that he can be entrusted with a crucial mission of taking uh, Scripture, taking a letter of Paul's, to the Philippians. For I have no one else of kindred spirit. The others have fallen by the wayside. They have become distracted by different details of life. But Timothy is the only one who has maintained the priority. He's the only one who has been steadfast uh, for the truth. Paul says, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Because of uh, Timothy's integrity, he can be truly concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. But Paul goes on to say, for they all seek after their own interests. A person cannot be a friend if their primary agenda is their own interest. You can't be a good husband. You can't be a good wife if your plan, your agenda is the priority over doctrine. And then Paul concludes by saying, But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Timothy was loyal to Paul because Timothy's first loyalty was to God and to Bible doctrine, to the Scriptures. And that gave him integrity in his soul so that he could be loyal in his friendships with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning to again be impressed with the centrality of love for the mature christian life that love is based on what you have done for us in providing salvation in jesus christ we pray now that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Your salvation is not dependent on who you are or what you have done, but is based on who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross as he paid the penalty for your sins through his spiritual substitutionary death. Right now, right where you sit, if you put your faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father who is omniscient knows that you have trusted him for eternal salvation. And at the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you are regenerate. God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and on the basis of that declares you to be justified and imputes to you the, his very own eternal life so that you never again need to be concerned or worried about your eternal destiny. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the things that we have studied this morning in relationship to friendship and loyalty. We pray that you would help us to see how we can put these into practice in our own lives under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.